contains scenes of violence that may be considered shocking. No one under 17 will be admitted. Chapter 2 Compared to the frenzied excitement of the newsroom, the rest of the dust-laden city of Philadelphia was calm. The buildings of the sprawling low-income housing project interconnected by walkways and playground areas, the parking lots filled with rusting second-hand cars, a few pimps' Cadillacs sprinkled throughout. It is dusk, and the city of Philadelphia is surprisingly quiet. We see several large buildings. They are part of a low-income housing project, and their lack of grace is evident. They stand like tombstones as the first stars appear in the navy blue sky. In the shadows, squatting alongside the entrance to one of the building's fire stairs, Roger DeMarco felt a sharp shooting pain in his thigh. Still in a squatting position, he tried to stretch out the aching leg to relieve the charley horse. The stillness was deceptive. It didn't seem that this was the national disaster that the politicians had been crying about for months. The population really felt that the government was putting one over on them. No one, particularly the uneducated, the superstitious, and the very religious, really believed the government's explanations of why the dead were returning to life. No one wanted to believe that the husband, the wife, the child, or the parent that they had just lost would return to terrorize and devour human flesh. Even Roger, who wasn't particularly politically astute, realized that the administration in power didn't have the faith and confidence of the people. The stock market had plummeted way below the lowest point of the Carter administration. Unemployment had soared and inflation was rampant. With the presidential election coming up, most citizens felt this was just another ploy to get the country behind the administration's candidate. Under cover of the growing darkness, activities of the SWAT unit go unnoticed. Grappling hooks grab against the lip around the roof, and silent figures climb to the top of the building. Men in armor vests, clutching the latest and special weapons, take position here and there about the development. Other men strategically place their cars and trucks in the court below. On the roof... At an entrance to one of the building's fire stairs, Roger squats silently alongside three other team members. The men check their weapons. Roger looks at his watch. The sweep hand reaches the 12. Roger, to himself. Lights. In an instant, large searchlights bathe the side of the building. The troop commander, shielded with other officers behind a large truck, shouts through an electric bullhorn. Commander. Martinez! You've been watching. You know we've got this building surrounded. The electrically amplified voice echoes through the concrete caverns between the buildings of the project. There are only a few windows which glow with lights from inside. At the sound of the bullhorn, the lights all blink out one at a time. Commander, not over bullhorn. Bastard's got them moved into one building. Dumb little bastard. Sergeant. Looks like they're really going to try to fight us. Commander, on the bullhorn again. Come on, Martinez. People in this project, they're your responsibility. We don't want any of them hurt, and neither do you. There is no sign of life in the building. The great concrete slab is silhouetted silently against the darkening sky. Roger and his teammates crouch in readiness. The sound of the bullhorn rises to them easily and clearly. He continued to the Puerto Rican leader of the tenants' uprising. They had refused to evacuate the building and were creating their own cemetery in the basement. Roger. I'm giving you three minutes, Martinez. Commander, bullhorn. I'm giving you three minutes, Martinez. The commander, a brisk, wiry, gray-haired man in his 50s, continued. Roger. There's no charges against you. Commander. There are no charges against you or any of your people. Roger. 
Yes. Commander. Three minutes, Martinez. Roger. And counting. He looks at his watch. There's a long silence. Roger. Come on, Martinez. One of the other SWAT team members is a big man with a rough and vicious-looking face. He is Wooly, a hardened veteran and a redneck of the First Order. Who had come up north like a mercenary. Wooly. Yeah, come on, Martinez. Show your greasy little Puerto Rican ass so I can blow it right off. Roger looks over at the big man. He is distressed at the pent-up violence in Wooly. Wooly. Blow all their asses off, low-life bastards. Blow all their low-life little Puerto Rican and nigger asses right off. Distressed, Roger looked over at the big man, who was so caught up in his violence that he jumped up from undercover and was a perfect moving target for the snipers. Roger could see that the Alabama man was starting to crack. The prior material was excerpted from the 1977 working draft of the motion picture Dawn of the Dead, written by George A. Romero. Sound clips from the film itself and elements from the novelization by Susanna Sparrow, including audio of Jonathan Davis reading from the novelization. The extended Con Film Festival cut continues to be our guide, and this minute of coverage begins at the 6.11 mark. However, in this version, the musical cue Eruption by Eric Torin begins while we're still gazing at Fran at the WGON studio. Eruption is another of the many DeWolf Library cuts used by Romero. It was originally pressed in 1966 for the album Continent 7. Eric Torin appears to have worked pretty extensively for DeWolf. His contributions include tracks used in the films Invincible Shaolin, Human Skin Lanterns, and numerous pieces from Monty Python's Flying Circus, most notably Revolt from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Through Sylvester Music Company, alongside the International Studio Orchestra, Torin pressed the albums Hemisphere and Zenith. We'll have more Torin tracks coming up in the future. Back to Khan. In this cut, we start off with a shot of a tiny, pale sliver of crescent moon in a night sky that is zoomed upon. It's an odd choice, and I'm glad Romero thought better of it. Cut to the SWAT officer rappelling down the side of a tenement building, the numerous quick cuts of the commander on a bullhorn, various emergency vehicles, and more policemen moving into position. There's a slight flurry of snow visible briefly, and only when the camera is on the commander. Dawn was shot in the winter, and there are plenty of stories about the sometimes freezing conditions, but especially during this sequence. Moving up to the roof, we see Roger smoking and smugly pantomiming the commander. The script and novelization keep referencing Roger checking a luminescent watch to mark the time until the raid, so it's funny that there's no such watch in the actual film. There's also an emphasis on Wooly being a southern fried racist, so his unmistakable northern accent sharply contrasts against Romero's casting intentions. This minute falls a few seconds short at 7.07. The European cut starts this minute at 6.33 with an extreme close-up of a red police light. It runs pretty much literally a minute and includes Roger's anticipation of the commander's bullhorn announcements. Notably, there's no music in this version. Romero continued tightening and refining for the theatrical cut. The WGON sequence ends on a brief reprise of La Alba de Morti Viventi with an overdub of Dr. Foster's proclamations segueing into the repelling SWAT officer. It's so masterfully done that I frankly find the other edits clumsy and mildly offensive by comparison. The actual scene shift occurs at 5.44, following by a more staccato editing of the tenement sequence. In this version, Romero cuts the elderly sergeant's line and all of Roger's taunting of the commander, aside from the yet with regard to charges against Martinez. This version ends at 6.23 after less than 40 seconds, and 10 seconds shy of where the Argento cut even began that minute. As a fan, I enjoy the extra time, 
but the moments lost aren't necessary, and it speeds up the pace considerably. Given that this is our introduction to Roger DeMarco, the third of the four leads to appear, it's probably best that he's not made to look like a callous prick right off. In the greater context of the character, it seems clear to me that Roger is engaging in a bit of gallows humor, and mocking the predictable motions of the commander's ineffective negotiation. In isolation, though, it makes him appear to be disdainful of any attempted non-violent resolution, seemingly as geared up for a massacre as Wooly. That's nowhere near the impression given by Roger's actions even in the next few scenes, much less the movie overall, so it's better for establishing his character to cut those lines. Since we're being introduced to the SWAT unit in this minute, of which two of the film's lead characters are members, I'd like to offer an introduction to SWAT itself. If you guess we'd managed to work all the way back to slavery, you've been paying attention. Overwhelmingly, the highest concentrations of African-descended Americans resided in the slave-owning South, because they were not naturally occurring in this land. They were imported, don't you know? After the Civil War, the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, while the 14th made all people born or naturalized in the United States citizens, thus formally recognizing the existence and citizens' rights of African Americans. The 15th Amendment gave all male citizens the right to vote, regardless of color. Since slave states were majority black, notably Mississippi and South Carolina, between 1870 and 75, seven congressmen of color were elected. In these times, Democrats were the party of slavery, and they violently opposed equal representation. I'm saying that literally, they suppressed voting through violence, via paramilitary vigilantes like the White League, Red Shirts, and Ku Klux Klan. War hero Ulysses S. Grant had been presiding over this period, which was marred by rampant corruption. Grant himself appeared to be a man of integrity, but he was unable to constrain the grift within his own government, and chose not to seek a third term as president. Thanks to voting irregularities, his successor was unclear, and the Compromise of 1877 was ultimately brokered to install Republican Rutherford B. Hayes as president. Basically, the Republicans that had fought for freedom sold out their black constituents to keep the presidency. Despite being a Republican, Hayes elevated Reconstruction critics in his government, and since the heart of the Compromise was the removal of government troops from the South, he effectively rang in the Jim Crow era. So yes, Democrats were the party of racism until Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act in the 60s. But the Party of Lincoln only existed for 12 years after his assassination, before becoming the Y'all on Your Own Party. Until 1910, 90% of African Americans lived in the Jim Crow South, but they spent the next 60 years getting the hell out. By the end of the Great Migration in 1970, only half of black Americans still lived in the South. Both for economic and sociopolitical reasons, black Americans gravitated out of the country into major urban areas. That's where the money was, and there was safety in numbers. Further, due to losses from military enlistment and a lack of immigration during World War I, there were worker shortages in northern industries that were filled by these migrating blacks. Imagine better than doubling your pay by moving to a place that didn't have volumes of draconian laws specifically targeting you and lynchings were a rarity instead of a daily hazard. But again, you have these huge numbers of black country folks hitting mostly major cities like Philadelphia, forcing recent immigrant underclasses like the Irish and Italians to compete for work and housing. Further, the war ended, and all these white guys were coming home to find their jobs held by people willing to work for far less money than they demanded. Suddenly, you're having lethal race riots and advocacy for segregation in the North. But given the obvious gains by blacks through this migration, they had every reason to stand their ground in the cities. They continued to move during the Great Depression because automation was taking away all the agricultural work that had previously kept blacks in the South. Combined with renewed worker shortages during World War II and the economic boom that followed, there was plenty to go around in U.S. cities into the 1960s. The migrations didn't really end until the late 70s, as American deindustrialization triggered the Rust Belt crisis in states like Pennsylvania, 
which is the specific setting of Dawn of the Dead. Among the northern and western cities that absorbed this migration was Los Angeles, California, which experienced one of the worst race riots during the 1965 Watts Uprising. The year prior, California had passed Proposition 14, which effectively legalized the rampant housing discrimination aimed at keeping people of color out of places like L.A. There was also oppressive policing in the area, with members of the Nation of Islam being favored targets. Whites blamed communist instigators and began fleeing urban and suburban areas like Compton and Huntington Park, taking their tax revenues with them. A commission eventually determined that the root causes of the Watts riots was discrimination in employment, housing, and education. They recommended a raft of social programs to improve the circumstances in the area, but the report was largely ignored. Instead, LAPD officer John Nelson suggested that what was really needed ahead of another race riot was a special weapons attack team to more aggressively confront unruly citizens. He took the proposal to Inspector Daryl F. Gates and it was massaged into special weapons and tactics before being sold to the higher-ups in the department. The idea was to take military veterans and give them higher-grade arms confiscated from criminals to address situations beyond the skill set of officers with only standard police training. In case the name Daryl Gates sounds familiar, it probably means you lived through the Rodney King riots of 1992. We're uh, southbound on uh, Paxton. It appears to be three male blacks in the vehicle. It's a white Hyundai, I believe. At any time during this evening, did it go through your mind that this was not a human being that you were beating? The police approach black men as criminals first and citizens second. Tonight, we must tell our children that for African-American children and adults, freedom is not yet a reality in the United States. If they cannot get a conviction with the Rodney King video available, there can be no justice in America. We, the jury, find the defendant not guilty. Today, this jury told the world that what we all saw wasn't a crime. We have to show Los Angeles that we are resilient. There's been a mini-riot at this location. Our people have suffered not only civil rights, but the right to be a human being. How many more Bradley King does it have to be? Now they're pulling the driver out. They're eating the driver. Oh, there. my God. How much worse does it need to get? Proclamation of a state of emergency for Los Angeles City. We have no police support whatsoever. This is not fair! This is not fair! This is not right! This is not right! I will use whatever force is necessary to restore order. Folks, you're on your own down there. Hardliner LAPD Chief Gates was judged harshly on the national stage for his response to the riots, ending a career begun in 1949. He still holds the second longest tenure as LA's Chief of Police, beginning in 1978, the same year as Dawn's first theatrical showings. I'm Daryl Gates, retired chief of the Los Angeles Police Department. In my 43 years as a police officer and 15 years as chief, I've seen much of L.A.'s post-war history. The Black Panther and SLA shootouts, the Marilyn Monroe investigation, Robert Kennedy's assassination, the 1984 Olympic Games, as well as literally hundreds of other shootouts and major investigations. 
If it happened in L.A., you can pretty much guarantee I was there. In 1965, I was the field commander during the Watts riots. All during the riots, LAPD officers took a lot of sniper fire. Our response lacked precision and often was too disorganized. Soon after the riots, we had a major shootout in which a gunman wounded two officers in the civilian and then barricaded himself in his home. While we were successful in taking the suspect into custody, the operation again lacked precision. These situations convinced us that it was essential to develop a disciplined response to a barricaded violent criminal. We realized that to maintain civil peace in these changing times, we had to take a hard look at the way we policed our cities. And that is how SWAT was born. Gates also co-founded the School Police Alliance Drug Abuse Resistance Education, better known as the D.A.R.E. program, the infamously ineffective money pit spawned by the war on drugs. Success has many fathers. While the term SWAT is generally credited to Gates, the concept was very much in the air in the mid-60s, not unlike the civil rights movement overall. In particular, cases of civilian snipers were on the rise in major cities. And according to the LAPD website, the concept of a small group of highly disciplined officers was commissioned to cope with these unusual and difficult attacks. In my home state of Texas, talks of the first SWAT-type unit began after the 1966 UT Tower shootings. All my life, I've heard variations on the phrase, I'm going to go climb a bell tower, as a darkly humorous euphemism for feeling anger or frustration akin to a mass shooter. I never realized that this was a regional and maybe also a generational thing until a quick Google search didn't yield first-page results. But I'm getting off topic. According to the Historical Dictionary of Law Enforcement by Mitchell P. Roth, the first SWAT unit was actually formed in 1964 by the Philadelphia Police Department. Philly, again, is where the story of Dawn of the Dead begins. And while they're never referred to as SWAT on screen, the script clearly indicates that's who we're seeing here. The original purpose was to address an increase in local bank robberies and was so effective in that regard that their scope was rapidly expanded to include any encounters likely to require a paramilitaristic response. SWAT specialties have since included hostage situations, activities addressing known heavily armed suspects, actions against subversive groups, and defense of police facilities during civil unrest. So let's break down all the jive talking. Subversive groups means organizations like the Black Panthers, who are trying to use their Second Amendment rights to protect the 13th through the 15th. Civil unrest was people like hippies marching against the war in Vietnam. SWAT can be sent against essentially anyone they can reasonably expect to be armed against the confrontation with authorities. The war on drugs was invented as a cover for police targeting political leftists and minorities. In theory, they're an escalation of standard police officers for exceptional threats. But more routinely and practically, they're a militarized fascist force the authorities can use against any citizens organizing resistance to the status quo, with an emphasis on defending white supremacy. And in this minute, they're poised to storm a tenement with armed black and Puerto Rican residents inside. Spoiler, that's going to turn out exactly how you think across the next several minutes. By the way, SWAT was also the title of a two-season TV spinoff of the more successful but now largely forgotten police procedural, The Rookies. SWAT survived in the public consciousness through its effective and groovy theme song, which became a staple needle drop in movies for years afterwards. SWAT itself spun off into a 2003 movie adaptation starring Samuel L. Jackson and was revived for CBS television in 2017. That version stars Shamar Moore and is still going today. The show continues to open with a more modern arrangement of the 1975-76 theme, which potentially informed the various action sequence songs by Goblin for Dawn of the Dead, particularly La Cassia.
I was frankly expecting the actor biography section to be a cakewalk this episode, dominated as it was by mostly faceless SWAT officers huffing around. Once again, I'm surprised by the depths of the lives of men who often only had seconds of screen time with a handful of lines. For example, James Angelo Baffico, who's still alive, but doesn't appear to do the convention circuit. Welcome to the commentary for Dawn of the Dead. And as you know, I'm Ken Forey, and I'm here with my compadres, and I would like to introduce... Hi, this is David Emge, Flyboy. This is George Romero. This is Scott Reiniger. And the beautiful... Galen Russ Flygirl. Oh, there's uh, Bully. Bully. Wooly. 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 Jimmy Baffico. Wooly. Yes, yes now, he's... Uh, that, George certainly was commenting, uh, certainly, on that kind of character, was he not? <laughs> Oh, uh, no complete total racist. Interesting how George weaves those little commentary and little mm-hmm. social perspectives mm-hmm. into his heart. A lot thing. of commentary. Yeah. It's, it's... Well, that's what made it a classic, my friend. Right. No, but when you think about some of the topics that are just sort of touched on and go past, it's mm-hmm. amazing. I mean, you're talking about abortion mm-hmm. later on. We're mm-hmm. talking about all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And this clown, you know, I mean... Yeah. What oh about the whole idea of tenements and the racial thing? You know, I mean, this yeah. is oh, yeah. a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Who'd have thought Woolsey would have his own Wikipedia entry? Jim Bafco was born on February 1st, 1942 in San Francisco, California, where he grew up. He attended St. Ignatius Prep where he presumably played high school football, which carried into college. He was on the roster from 1959 to 1963 for San Francisco, Marquette, San Francisco Community College, and Nebraska. Playing in 61, lettered in 62, but ruled ineligible by 63. He eventually went pro for a season in the Canadian Football League, playing offensive guard for the 1965 Toronto Argonauts. They won four out of 18 games. At the time, Bafico stood six foot two and weighed 262 pounds. From 1962 to 1972, he pursued a bachelor's, master's, and finally a doctorate in dramatic literature at the University of Michigan in Stanford. Meanwhile, he became a professional stage actor as a member of the APA Phoenix Company. For a time, he oversaw acting and directing at the University of Georgia before moving to Pennsylvania, where Bafico headed the directing program at the esteemed Carnegie Mellon University. Many of George Romero's roads passed through the institute, which is likely how Bafico made his screen acting debut as Woolsey. The internet movie Firearms Database would like you to know that Woolsey used a Smith & Wesson 916 shotgun and an Arminius HW revolver. He next appeared in the 1980 TV movie Death Penalty. As you'd probably expect by this point, it was filmed and set in Pittsburgh, but this time it's a period piece dramatizing a 1959 court case. In a race-based gang rumble, a Puerto Rican teenager kills several Irish Italians and ignites a citywide consideration of sociological injustices. Colleen Dewhurst, Joe Morton, and Dan Hadeish star, while Bafco has a cameo as Captain Leibowitz. That's right, we have only one suspect in question at the present time. Can you give us his name? Not yet, he's underage. Is he the boy they call the bandito? Yes, he's the bandito. Is he Puerto Rican? He's Puerto Rican. Been a lot of trouble this year between Italian, Irish, Puerto Rican gang. Let, let me break in there. We have no information that this is a gang-related incident. Our youth division is on top of this now. Do you deny that these killings are racial? I do not have sufficient information to affirm or deny. Off the record, I doubt there's anything racial involved here. All I can tell you is it's in the hands of the district attorney. The following year, Bafco joined the cast of Romero Regulars and Night Riders. This game is not just for the students. It's for the whole town. In 1983, he took part in the Tom Cruise football vehicle, All the Right Moves. Although set in the fictional western Pennsylvania small town of Ampipe, it was filmed in Johnstown, about 70 miles east of Pittsburgh. You may remember the reference to it in Dawn of the Dead when Stephen notes. We're still pretty close to Johnstown. Those rednecks are probably enjoying the whole thing. 
Bafico played one of those rednecks again, Bosco. What can I do for you? Mr. Bosco, <clears throat> I have a real problem. I'm not one for sports ball, so I've only ever seen the one scene of this movie with Leah Thompson a whole bunch of times. As I understand it, though, Cruz plays an attitudinal high school football player trying to score a scholarship to exit his dead-end plant town. Continuing a running theme of this show, the region is suffering from a recession and shrinking demand for domestic industry. The steel mill is the lifeblood of the town, but that blood's anemic, so there's no guarantee of stable employment with American pipe and steel. You guys are going to go on in your lives, you're going to achieve some great successes, and I hope and pray you do. But no matter what the future is going to bring, there's seldom going to be a moment like tonight when you hold it all in your hands. Together! And that's how we're going to win this game! We're going to win it together! We're going to win together! Come on now! Tom Cruise is Stefan Georgievich, a kid whose dreams are bigger than the town he lives in. What are you looking for, Steph? Looking to trade football for an education and still be able to walk. I hate football. I just like to watch number 33 run around in those tight black pants. His future depends on getting out. I mean, now you can't even get a job in that damn mill. You mean that mill over there where your father works? Where your brother works? Where my brother was laid off. You too good for us or something? No, sir. I just want to go to college. But the odds are against him. <laughs> Now you do it my way or it's a highway, Georgia Vick. I want to see some film on Riley, Georgia Vick, and Oliver. Georgia Vick, I got to pass on it. Why, that kid's real tough. No, he's got an attitude problem, sure. He's a kid, and he wants to go to college and be something. What's wrong with you, son? I bow. You bite. You dig. And your husband's stopping you. Well, where are you going? On the bus. Now, this is the wrong bus, son. This is for players. You ride back with the cheerleaders. You know, if he leaves here, you'll probably lose him. Any quitters here? No, no sir! Didn't hear you! No, sir! You cost us the game. You quit. We didn't quit. You quit. In everyone's life, there comes a moment when you gotta make your move. Look, we're getting out of here, Brian. And fight back. For Stefan Georgievich, hey. that moment is now. Together. Together, together. Scholarship here, no scholarship there. He goes, he stays. Who gave you that power? You're just a high school football coach. This is a story of courage. Of love. Of all the right moves. Tom Cruise, all the right moves. Funnily enough, they dropped both Cruz and Thompson in as new students at the local high school to pick up some regional flavor. Thompson managed to stay three days, but Cruz was outed immediately, even though he'd only really done taps by that point. Even if you couldn't rely on the mill, there was still the Romero King production complex. Bafico was in the 1985 screen adaptation of Stephen King's novella Cycle of the Wolf, which featured illustrations by Bernie Wrightson. Silver Bullet was filmed in North Carolina and starred Corey Haim, Gary Busey, and Megan Follows from the first Anne of Green Gables TV adaptation. Bafico plays Milt Sturmfuller, a drunken wrestling fan whose private greenhouse becomes infested by a werewolf. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the very best in professional wrestling, worldwide wrestling. And, John, we've got a very exciting match. We have one of the young lions in there, Brian Adidas. Come on, Rebel! We're going to bust him up tonight. We're going to kick some ass. We're going to kick some ass. Ow! Bust him up! 
erupts from the loose wooden floorboards of the greenhouse, one of which impales Sturm Fuller before he's dragged under and mauled. Bathico returned to TV for episodes of the Robert Urich Private Eye show Spence for Hire in 1986 and 88. He also turned up in 1988's Me and Him, a sex comedy where Griffin Dunn's penis starts talking to him, apparently featuring a Randy Emily Gilmore. It made 78000 at the box office. Bathico was in an episode of the extremely short-lived Dream Street, starring Pet Cemetery dad Dale Midkiff in 1989. Although they aren't listed on IMDb, he was also featured in the films Arthur, The War of Two Worlds, and A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court as well as the TV series The Wire. From 1993 to 2003, Bafco made four separate appearances as different characters on two Law & Order series, closing out his acting career with an episode of Criminal Intent. His final film appearance was as a police officer in the 2000 romantic comedy It Had to Be You, starring Natasha Henstridge and Michael Varton. Hey, did, did you hear that? A serial killer... Mister, you got a quarter? ...is on the loose. And these two cops are on the case. Detectives, who can it be the lousiest cops on the force? Look behind you towards that corner. Don't be obvious. But when the bad guys turn out to be bad girls, and the killer starts working overtime, can these cops save Pittsburgh before it's too late? Shut up! It's only Sweeney's wife. You'll get a blast out of this hilarious horror spoof. This one's a blockbuster. Two thumbs up. Blood-sucking pharaohs in Pittsburgh. Now on video cassette from Paramount.
From 1982 to 1986, Bafico produced movies and how-to videos as president of Saratoga Films' Bafico Brieger Video. He then moved into television as a producer, executive producer, and director until 2007. He specialized in soap operas, including Days of Our Lives, All My Children, Another World, and The Doctors, as well as the films The Cottonwood, Bloodsucking Pharaohs in Pittsburgh, and his short-lived TV series Swan's Crossing, starring a preteen Sarah Michelle Gellar. Overall, he scored seven daytime Emmy nominations and two wins. Since 1992, Jim Bafico has been the owner of The Four Wood Company, a New York-based production outfit. Bafico taught film acting for many years at the Wiest Baron School in New York, informing the writing of his 2012 book, A Film Actor's Technique, a step-by-step guide to movie acting success, from Trafford Publishing. It appears that Bafico is largely retired these days. He's a member of the Essex Country Club in West Orange, New Jersey, and occasionally writes articles for Golficity.com. Next, we look at the unnamed commander calling out to Martinez for final negotiations ahead of the siege. The actor's real name was Fred Baker, and he was close friends with Louis Proyekt, a notable Marxist pundit and member of the New York Film Critics Online. Proyekt references his good friend Baker often on his blog, offering anecdotes, biographical details, and video footage which was obviously of value to this podcast. Proyekt described Baker as an outgoing, passionate sort and a sensualist, whose favorite subjects were sex, art, food, and politics. Fred Baker was born into the United States Communist Party in 1932, and while never a member himself, was a lifelong proponent of radical leftist thought. His father, Harry Baker, Romanian Jew, worked as a furrier and was a communist and member of the Fur and Leather Workers Union, and was deeply involved in the Congress of Industrial Organizations CIO Union Movement, who died of arteriosclerosis in 1978. Fred and his two sisters grew up in the Bath Beach section of Brooklyn as active and vocal members of the Young Communist League. When he was a young kid, Fred spent his summers at Camp Ocean. Chica in New Jersey, which stood for Workers' Children's Camp, a socialist youth experiment in the Catskill Mountains where Jews and black Americans cohabitated. It was a place where you could learn folk dancing, songs by the weavers, and the merits of socialism, not to speak of softball games, swimming, and all the rest. It was there that Baker discovered his theatrical and musical skills, and he gleefully mingled socially. Catskills establishments, like the one depicted in the movie Dirty Dancing, Kellerman's, had once been havens for progressives and bohemians. It was only after the Red Scare that they shifted into the genteel inanities depicted in the film. That's Pearl Primus, who worked as a dance counselor at Wochica. She was born in Trinidad, but grew up in New York. After graduating from Hunter College in 1940 with a combined biology and pre-med degree, she couldn't find a job as a lab technician. Yes, even in liberal New York, there was lots of racism. So she did what she could to make ends meet, including a job as a riveter in the Brooklyn Navy Yards, where years later, SWP members took jobs in a futile effort to recruit workers to their cause. Like Catherine Dunham, another African-American dance icon, Primus was a person of the left. And also like Dunham, she pioneered a modern dance style based on African folk dancing. In their biography of Pearl Primus, Peggy and Murray Schwartz have a great story about Fred learning drums at Wochica. Let me read it to you now. Fred Baker, a New York filmmaker, was from a working-class family and was typical of the Jewish children who attended Wochika. He described his family as sensitive to religious and racial persecution and remembers in 1938 hearing a new verse to roll out the barrel, which went, let's get the Jews on the run. Fred, who sang in an international choral group directed by Earl Robinson, remembered the politics of the day, especially the American Lincoln Brigade in the Spanish Civil War, of which many of the counselors at Wochika were veterans. Baker met Pearl in 1941 when he was nine years old, and she was was a college student. She thought I was the cat's pajamas because I was a funny little kid. One day Pearl grabbed him and said, drum for my class. I need a live drummer. 
she had been teaching with Folkways African Rhythm Records. So she put the record on, gave him a set of Moroccan bongos, which are African red clay drums, with very taut skins, and said, just bang on them. He did as he was instructed, and she started dancing. The affinity and connection were immediate. She would enhance the steps, Fred recalled. If it was a dozy dough, she would add a bit of an African shake to it. She told him, keep going, keep going. Fred said, I just got into it because I'd heard those rhythms on records that my sister had brought home, like Zulu Warrior. Primus said, you have to be at all my dance classes. I'll give you those drums. When people ask me, Fred said, how did you become a drummer? I say, there was a dancer named Pearl Primus. She taught me how to play the drums when I was seven or eight years old. Pearl gave Fred the set of drums and said, those are yours. Take them home and never stop playing them. That's the kind of lady she was. She said that. Never stop playing those drums. I was a willing singer. So you, you give me something to sing, I'll sing it. Yeah. That's the way I looked at it. There was a good high school chorale. I eventually became part of what they called All City Chorus, which was uh, people picked from each high school to be the in a major New York chorus. So because I was, I guess, considered to some degree pretty talented, or I had a good voice or whatever, people like the way I sing, especially when I had, had the high register, was being called on to do special engagements as a 12-year-old. In other words, sing solo. The people who called on me were, were either Paul Robeson himself, Peter Seeger, and all of a sudden I would find myself singing underneath the balls of Washington's statue in Union Square, the first time ever tenor solo rendition. That means the, the verses. Mm -hmm. Because the chorus was, uh, Name a map of flag I see, a certain word democracy, that is America to me. And then I would sing, The house I live in, the street, the home, the room. That rally, I was the first one to introduce Earl Robinson's The House I Live In. How Frank Sinatra ends up getting a hit record on it, I have no idea. Everybody in the neighborhood knew who the commies were. It was nothing to be, to be ashamed of. In fact, in those days in the neighborhood, the mid, the late 30s into the mid 40s, into well into the war, you had nothing. You didn't have to make apologies for being a communist or being leftist oriented or knowing the uh, the, the songs of the left because you were singing songs about humanitarianism. So, yeah, listen, Mr. Bilbo, listen to me. We'll give you a lesson in history. Listen while we tell you about the furriners you hate are the very same people who made America great. Listen, Mr. Bilbo, listen to me. We'll give you a lesson in history. Listen while we tell you about the furriners you hate were the very same people made America great. The treasure trove songs that were coming out of the out of Robeson's mouth to our ears that were in celebration of the songs being sung by the American Lincoln Brigade in Spain. So now we're talking 37, 38, 39. And those were songs like Viva la Quinta Brigada, rumba 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 la. Viva la Quinta Brigada, rumba 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 la. Que sea cubierta de gloria, ay Manuela, ay Manuela. I sang the Ballad of Americans. Get this. Nineteen thirty-nine at the World's Fair. Guess what country's pavilion? Soviet Union. The Soviet fucking Union's pavilion. 
and I sang certain solo portions to D6, the sky was red, thunder rumbling overhead, and bad King George couldn't sleep in his bed, cause on that stormy morn, old Uncle Sam was born. Uh -huh, uh -huh. What kind of hat does Street Corner have? Mm -hmm. What kind of hat does Street Corner have? Mm -hmm. Old Sam put on a three-cornered hat, and in a Richmond church he sat, while Patrick Henry told him that while America drew breath, it was liberty or death. Paul Robeson was a guest of honor at Mochica, no matter what the Red Baiters had to say. So much so that they named the Camp Playhouse after him. One of Fred's fondest memories from Mochica, besides learning to play the drums from Pearl Primus, was catching a football on the run that Robeson had passed to him. Go out for it, kid, Robeson told him. And Fred caught it. Besides singing and raising hell about racism, that's something else that Robeson was good at, football. He was an All-American at Rutgers University and even played professionally in the NFL and studying law at Columbia University. In 1950, a right-wing mob stormed Wilchika and demanded that they take the Paul Robeson sign down from the playhouse. Only a year earlier, the same kind of scum attacked the Paul Robeson concert in Peekskill, New York. Fred was part of a defense guard on the concert's perimeter that day, quite possibly part of the group shown in this YouTube clip, defending against the racist mobs. He had scheduled on his return a fourth annual concert for the Civil Rights Congress in Peekskill. However, those who wanted his outspoken voice stilled threatened violence if Robeson sang. Protesters paraded. Baker eventually attended the University of Miami in 1950 as a theater major, taking full advantage of the beaches and parties. I was uh, 20, what? Maybe 22. Yeah, I think it's 54, 53, 54. Okay. Whatever the date was, I was a young 20-year-old or, or a teenager. My own, my sister and her brother had to leave New York. Both lost jobs. One lost job at CBS, one lost job at my, my brother-in-law. My sister and my brother, Bob's right. Uh, Stanley Prager, who I was directing uh, or wanting to, 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 you know, met as director, was uh, completely blacklisted, couldn't get a Broadway show, couldn't get work to do in New York. You know, it was, it was the 50s, it was what was going on. And I think, personally, that although I kept my head about me, and in fact, wrote, wrote some diaries of my own, I, I started getting, keep your mouth. What? I told you the Larry Hagman story, right? Mm -hmm. Larry was Mary Martin's son down there, hanging out, okay. watching the stuff we were doing in the drama department. Mm -hmm. And he makes friends with me, and he says, I got a job. You want to get a job? I said, what? My mother helped me get a job with Sinjin Terrell's Music Circus. And that was, they had a tent out in Treasure Island, which was a nice little drive. It was like way out in the 200s block. And we were already south of, we were in Carl, Ga uh, Carl Gable's Coconut Grove, mm -hmm. the University of Miami was. So mm -hmm. 
It was already a drive. And he had a little apartment underneath this wooden tent structure, this wooden tent stage that went down into a stage. He had like an apartment underneath there that he had fixed up. Not an apartment, like a hole in the ground that he lived in. And within a day, I'm working at Sinjin Terrell's Music Circus in Treasure Island nightly running props down the, down the aisles, changing scenery for actors like uh, Iggy Wolfington and up in Central Park, Joan Roberts and John Rayton in Oklahoma. And we're getting 10 bucks a show or something like that. And I'm like, all of a sudden, I'm writing home to my father and saying, don't send me any money, you know, because and I was sending money home. I was really a very nice kid with my money. I mean, my father needed money, I sent him money, you know. I'll tell you about that later when I got back from Europe, mm -hmm. how the Second Avenue Deli got open. Yeah. So now I'm double doubling up. I'm doing plays in college, but I got a professional job running props in a professional touring company with big Broadway stars and, you know, in a band and real props, real scenery, you know. So half and half, I'm in two worlds now. So I jumped ship on college. Well, I told him that I did not want wish to go to Korea, that I didn't wish to fight Korea, that Korea was my soldiers in arms. At the Seattle, I was on my way to Korea, right? Yeah. So I wouldn't get out of bed when they called for everybody to mount and get on the ship. So they took me in, and I, I went stiff. Now, that's interesting, because I didn't know anything about the SNCC, uh, you know, uh, non-violent, right. non-resistant. All I knew was that if I resisted, I was going to get myself kicked around, so I didn't resist at all. So they took me and mounted, got me on the boat, and off we went. And I got to Korea, I uh, put in for clerk duty, which I got. Then I started making these statements, I would write these memos. I started to think of myself not so much as a revolutionary or a radical, mm -hmm. but as a crook. <laughs> so now I'm, I'm reporting sick every day. I get sick, I want to see a psychiatrist. I get the psychiatrist, I want to make a statement about my political beliefs and about how I will not take part in this war. They threatened me with court-martial, pretty close to it, I, and I, I went swimming. And in swimming, I don't know that this was not psychologically driven, or this was in fact motivational, uh, some motivational self-destructive thing. Mm -hmm. But I dive off the, the board at the swimming thing in Seoul, and I see this couple come up right in front of me, mm -hmm. where I'm going to hit. And I twist it off to the side mm -hmm. to miss them. You know, I just went, whoops, mm -hmm. and went into the water. And having done so, the next morning I couldn't move. I was in paralysis from my neck down. Was I in paralysis? To this day, I was in paralysis. So they started doing prick tests and all that kind of shit, and they were they were really not that equipped yet in Seoul for uh, neurological neurological shit. Mm -hmm. Boom! I'm back Fort Sam Houston, Brooks Army Medical Center, in the psycho neurology. Long story short, put into uh, traction, total, you know, 100%. Colonel Glass comes to see me, and he's the Surgeon General, the first Jewish general, Samuel L. Glass. He was the Surgeon General of the, of the uh, either of the Army or of that particular, of that hospital, Fort Sam Houston. No, it was Fort Sam Houston. He eventually became uh, the Surgeon General of the Army. And he comes to see me and he says, uh, are you full of shit about not being able to move and pain and da 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 Or, we put, if you are, and you, you've already been to 
pieces and you, you're deserting from war in wartime, you know, blah, blah. He gives me this whole comment speech. And, you, you know, you can get very bad and hurt. I want to do a series of tests and really determine. He says it's going to take spinal taps. Now, here's my own fucking tribe doing a documentary on me, right? He knows I'm bullshit, right? And trying to get out of his mean one spinal tap. And then he orders up another one for the next day. And I went in and said, oh, okay, I give up. No, I don't want too many spinal taps. They don't feel that good. And he says, okay, well, what do you want to do? I've spoken to your father. Mm-hmm. my father. And he says, yeah, I called your father, Harry. Tell me, he owns the delicate No, we didn't own the deli yet. Because I paid for the deli with money I made in Europe. He sends me on a, a 60-day home recuperation trip to New York with orders on, a, on an up sign. I had to sign up for two years of full duty in Europe, but in special services. Which, which means what? Theater, film, variety shows, beauty contests. Okay. <laughs> you know what this man. Beauty contests and barbershop quartets to go to every USO show in Europe. By 1952, he was doing musical comedies on Broadway, playing a lead role in Mary Chase's Bernadine. Per Variety, after a three-year stint in the Army in Korea and Europe, Baker starred in three films in Germany for U.S. television. Upon returning to New York, he began a string of character roles in many Broadway and touring productions. His film credits from this period include roles in Doorway to Suspicion and Fire One. The latter starred Don Amici, who had a fine career in the golden age of Hollywood, but is today probably best known as one of America's favorite old-timers in 80s flicks like Trading Places and Cocoon. He was also driving Miss Daisy, actress Jessica Tandy's mister. Anyway, I'm in, now I'm like in New York, and I go to my acting class, and Bobby, Bobby Guest, my old uh, acting buddies there, uh, whose brother is Stan Guest, right? Hey, meet us down, and blah, 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 I'm meeting my girlfriend from Brooklyn, blah, blah, blah. So I go down to Louis, and it's not Bobby Guest is there, it's his brother, Stan Guest is there, with this gorgeous-looking, dark-haired, 17-year-old from Brooklyn College. And I take one look at her, and I hope I can say, you know, ditto for her, but I don't know. And that's it for me. My name is Barbara Greenblatt. And I'm saying, the stand guest goes to meet some other people. I say, what are you doing with this junkie? She's very cool. She said, what do you mean? What kind of question is that? I'm a piece of junkie. Parrying me. The end story is Bobby can't show up, who's supposedly taking out Barbara. And Stan makes the wonderful suggestion that Bobby made on a phone, since I'm going back to Bath Beach and she's going back to Brighton Beach, can I drive her home? Because I had my father's 51 Pontiac. Green, beautiful, sleeky Pontiac. I drive her home all the way out to Brighton Beach. We parked a car. She says, let's go walk on the beach. And that was all she wanted. We fell in instant love. I took her to my house in Brooklyn the next day and to meet my mother. Oh, we know it, we're meeting the family. And we're also practicing for that time in my life, which I knew nothing about yet. For her, her time in life, she seemed to be a very, very sexually experienced. So we're having a great deal of sex on subways in, in, in bathrooms somewhere, wherever we could find a place. You know, it's 18, 17 year old sex. Two people like, you know, just. It's, you know, it's early 50s. It's not supposed to be happening. Whatever. Who the fuck cares? We had a whole different attitude. She followed me to Europe. I, I, I did get assigned to Europe. I was working uh, 
in the Nuremberg Special Services, uh, in Munich Special Services, doing, actually making movies for American filmmakers. So I got hired by American filmmakers. And she showed up in Paris just during the time I was in Munich. I got a free air transport to Paris. We spent four or five days here in Paris. I said, okay, then you're coming with me. And I flew her back to Munich. And then she hung out with me for about four or five months or as long as we could after having spent enough time on stage as an actor and director baker transitioned to television as a writer producer for wnet new york's flagship public media channel 13 in 1963 he was friends with jazz great charlie mingus and tried to talk him into doing a short piece for a nine-minute dance feature he wanted to make mingus ultimately declined but with Gigi grice and a trio of performers from the martha graham dance company they produced the short piece on the sound it won the USA Golden Eagle for that year, along with selections and special mentions at the Edinburgh, Berlin, and Venice International Film Festivals, plus honors at Film Society of Lincoln Center's 2011 Dance on Camera series. It's one of the few videos uploaded by Baker to his Vimeo channel, and the only one to be recommended. It's basically three beautiful dancers dressed all in white to contrast her dark skin, frolicking on a beach in the Long Island Sound, to penetrating thrusts of brass. It's not remotely as provocative as I've made it sound, but the context isn't ambiguous either. This makes a good transition to the next stage of his career in the 1960s as a pornographer. Finally, out of this whole process, I don't know exactly how, of shooting these chicks in the shower and, and, and making my own things with chicks I was meeting, or, you know, I got into people, models or whatever, who said they were doing porno. So I said, oh, really? And uh, how's that, you know? And I found my way into the porno loop business, which was, at that time, was illegal. You were making 8mm fuck scene, fuck films. And so twice a week, I got my little box with a, a small Bolex little tripod attached to the side of the box. Everything I needed to go anywhere at any time and shoot 200 feet of, of 8mm, maybe five of those, so 1,000 feet of 8mm, make five films, five 200-foot films with six or seven porno players, girls and boys. And I got into that as a means of making about $2,000 a week. I can't say that my whole interest in foreign films wasn't to some 50% the desire to see a naked body in a movie, you know, in which, which they kind of pretty well let you have, including the Fellinis, even the Masters, certainly Bergman in his early movies. I don't know that he did it consciously, but that was his natural bent as a filmmaker to uh, deal with nudity. So there was a certain kind of sophistication, political growing up, as to what was dishonest about America and what would America be shocked by, political, right, to shock the system so that it changes or collapses, <laughs> you know, whatever. Whatever your Marxist bent at the time was in terms of how much you hated the exploitation syndrome or how much you were living with it but knew that you could maybe affect change. And this is all very, very pompous of me to think that that's what I was into. But at the same time, you can look at it that way, coming out of who I was. But basically, I was jacking myself off, thinking that if I could make money and learn craft this way, wonderful. Why drive a cab? Why, you know? At the same time, you're making enough film to get noticed by other, other people that need you to work for them, etc., etc. There was a networking at that level. I found out where I could go to sell them to this guy named Spanish Louis, who was an Ecuadorian mafia cohort that was here 
just to do that, to make movies. He loved movies. He had one of the most astounding collections of antique porno, stuff dating back to 1910, in 16mm uh, Master, which is another story, was we get to that. So all of a sudden, I'm shooting for Louis, and he's giving me double 8mm film, which is on a 16mm. You turn it over like you do a tape. Do you shoot eight millimeter, in an 8mm camera? It'll put 8 on one side, going one way, and then you continue on so you get... Out of a, 60, a roll of 200 feet, 16 millimeter, or 300 feet, you get 600 feet of eight. So it's a long run in the camera, which is great. And I find myself connecting mostly, not so much with porno people, whoever they were at the time. I mean, I think basically we created it, the early porno shooters, for those, that, those years. Because on the one hand, in Sweden and Denmark, you've got it now being produced on a very, very terrific level and shown in theaters. And that was like kind of coming through in the papers, you know, you were starting to read about uh, Sweden has uh, open pornography films, uh, feature films, trying to sell them at, at the Cannes Film Festival. Nobody even thought about it. That's probably how Baker funded his next evolution as an uncredited executive producer on 1966's The Battle of Algiers, now part of the Criterion Collection. Basically, Baker took advantage of the free love hippies of the time, looking for a little bread, and would film illegal loops for the mob. If you don't know what loops are, you can find them on your preferred porn website deep in the vintage section. These were short, single sex scene flicks, usually only running a few minutes. Film itself is expensive, and filming sex was against the law. So many could be made by renting these loops out to stag parties for projection. Why a group of men would want to watch porn together while fully dressed eludes me. But I guess they maybe had to pull resources to see them and recall the memory for private use later on. Anyway, Baker would shoot these loops twice a week for a couple of grand to feed his family. And they would be bootlegged throughout North America by this cat named Spanish Louie. The porn life was draining Baker. So he finally talked Spanish Louie into fronting him 25K to shoot an experimental improvisational feature. In 1970, he wrote, directed, and produced events with Joy Bang, Ryan Lisman, Frank Cavastani, and a cameo by Robert Altman. What do I think of it? I think you're an ass. You're out of your mind. The point is... I can make some bread, and I can also work in film. Now, what's so bad about that? Frank Cavastani, by the way, is still active in Hollywood as an actor and in the camera and electrical departments of lots of films you know, like The China Syndrome, Born on the Fourth of July, and A Few Good Men. In fact, Cavastani filmed the participation of himself and Ron Kovic protesting against the Vietnam War at the 1972 RNC for the documentary Operation Last Patrol. It was Kovic's novel, Born on the Fourth of July, that served as the basis for the Tom Cruise film, which uses shot-for-shot recreations from Operation Last Patrol. Frank is uh, a friend of mine now, and he lives in the city, comes events, who else am I going to call but some friends and I tell him about it, he was living in his family's house on Ninth Avenue, getting into all kinds of like petty problems, and he's now back from Vietnam, so he's a little bit of a different guy. It's not until a little later that Frankie started to realize, in 72, during the uh, convention that we both did demonstrations at, the uh, Creep Convention, and we both got gassed and arrested, started hanging out with the anti-war movement, that he kind of started to realize that strong personality of his. But up till then, he was just a sweet, young actor boy, and I liked a lot, and he liked me a lot, because he, he considered me pretty far out, I guess, in terms of my ideas and political ideas. Back to events, 
The film's blurb described it as being about a young filmmaker who wants to complete a documentary about Lenny Bruce and decides to raise the needed money by shooting a weekend of porno films, enlisting the help of his friends. Playboy magazine reviewer Bruce Williamson called events without question the most far-out, sexually experimental film made in the 60s or 70s. I go to Louis, so I, you know, I'm making a lot of money. Essentially what events was is he gave me 35 grand. I decided to go, I checked it out in 35 millimeter. It didn't seem that feasible. I decided to go 16 millimeter with a blow-up. And I processed out the 35,000 without taking a dime for myself to pay six actors or five actors and then other actors that would come into it. What would they do if they somehow or another had an opportunity to finish this documentary, this one actor who had a loft and was living with Joy Bangs? I, I, I got a loft. I put this couple together. And these were actors that were in off-Broadway shows. And Tom O'Horgan's Tom Payne. I met this kid, Ryan Lisman. This was an actress I saw in a Woody Allen. Uh, it was a Woody Allen or something. She played a little bit part. She's gorgeous. Joy Bang. This is a really hot movie. It's about four young people, two couples, that decide they have to spend one night and make up a big bunch of pornography so that they can sell it to this guy. Uncle Dirty played uh, Louie. Uncle Dirty was funny in it. Totally improvised, but that's the endeavor. And I, I rent a loft for two weeks, and if we can complete the endeavor in eight days, I can pay you $100 a day, which was big money, really. Yeah. And have a cameraman, and, you know, and really shoot it. And I decided to go 16 and do it as a total open endeavor improv. So whatever moved us. At the same time, I wanted them to find people at the various events that were happening in that real period of time, that real eight days. So I looked up in the papers and it said, Hog Farm freak out at NYU. I don't know if you know what that means. Anyway, there was a Lenny Bruceness out in LA I called an L.A. filmmaker and said, shoot the Brucemas. I got my people to go to those events, that's why it's called events, and find people that would make pornography that coming Saturday night at their law. In 1971, Baker again acted as an uncredited exec producer on The Murder of Fred Hampton. This was followed in 1972 by <clears throat> an adult film called Room Service 75, starring Harry Reams and Arlana Blue, then a documentary about Lenny Bruce. I'm thinking not so much art imitating life as anticipating it. He liked me. First of all, he thought I was funny. I mean, he could make me piss in my pants, but he thought I was funny, and I started hanging with him when he got out the next day. He actually used me as a drug connection, too, which I didn't like because it had to do with the heroin, and I'd never played with that. I'd always just been grass. That was my thing, hash and maybe some acid. So I went up to Harlem for him a couple of times, and I helped him with some of straightening out some of his papers. I admired him for who he was and what he did. I was doing double duty. On the one hand, I could be a friend, and I could be in touch with that kind of person. On the other hand, I was thinking, this is a movie. Well, I was never not thinking that. I don't think there's a filmmaker, an aspiring filmmaker or a working filmmaker, who doesn't think, this is a movie. Oh, my God, that's a movie. You know, whether the girl's getting undressed in the bathroom and you're lying in bed watching her, you're going, oh, this is a movie. Baker was one of the filmmakers contributing to the Elgin Theater, which launched the very concept of midnight movies, or cult cinema in general. After an industry-only showing at the Elgin, Baker managed to sell extras for $300,000. Spanish Louis was very pleased with his $125,000 profit, and Baker was glad he didn't lose any limbs or his life over it. Baker is perhaps best known for Lenny Bruce Without Tears, considered by some to be the definitive documentary on the groundbreaking, controversial stand-up comic. Bruce was a personal friend of Baker's, who wrote, directed, produced, researched, and narrated the feature. He even partially scored it with the song Lower East Side. The money may not have been there, though. 
because by 1973, he was directing different strokes. Oh no, not the popular sitcom, the kind you shoot under a pseudonym after reuniting with Harry Reams. That same year, he authored the book, Movie People, at work in the business of film for Lancer Contempora. It was the end of my pornography making days, at least I thought it was. And I was now making a film about pornography, but a film to be shown in theaters. So I finished the film and I show it to David Picker, the United Artists, and he fucking loves it, but he can't buy it. Why? Well, you know, I can't put that pornography, you know, I can't have that stuff at the end, because at the end, the climax of the film is the actual Saturday night session of shooting with jazz and fast-cut political overlays. I was doing a lot of psychedelics at the time, so I was getting, like, dollar bills and overshooting 16-millimeter, meaning re-exposing pornography on a double-eight strip you know, real pornography that I was shooting as the Midnight Mover overshadowed that with shots of George Washington eating a big tit from a Las Vegas, you know, showgirl. Da, da, you know, I show the president and go, da, 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 da. You know, it's all this kind of rhythmic weekend after the first weekend. Monday morning, like 9 o'clock, I get a call from someone I knew. I didn't know anything of who he was. He says, this is Barney Rossett. So was, I said, who's Barney Rossett? He goes, uh -huh. You know, like, you don't know who Bonnie was. It is. I'm the uh, publisher of Grove Press. That's my company. Now I knew who he was, and it's very important. Can you meet me for some coffee down at this coffee shop on Bleecker Street, blah, blah, blah? Can you get there at 11, 30, 12? You know, it's about 9. I meet him for coffee in this coffee shop. A little skinny guy with gray hair. Kind of a wily, good-looking Jewish cat, you know, in, the, in that sort of wild-eyed thing. And I liked him right away. And he liked me right away. Because I'm, you know, I'm relaxed. I put those nervous A-types... You know, I calm him down. I think I do, anyway. He says, we had a couple of spies at your midnight shows. The fact is, I was in a cab, and I couldn't... I called somebody right away. I said, get down over here. There's something happening. Something like midnight movies. He says, how much do you want for it? I said, what do you mean, want for it? You mean you want to buy it? You know, sight unseen. I mean, not sight unseen, but outright? Yeah. It's the only way we would take on a movie. We've got a big... Coffer, we're making millions of dollars with our first big feature out there. We want to buy about 20 movies. And if you know of any others like yours, you know, it's, we've been all over the world at all the festivals trying to find these fucking, you know, avant-garde out, out, you know, they got, they just sort of, he, from a book publisher, he just got very, very hip to open up a movie to it. Then he says to me, you seem to be very interested in pornography. So are we. We love it. We make a lot of money with our pornography. I said, Grove Press does pornography? Because I didn't know, you know. Mm -hmm. He says, sure, what do you think the story of O is? What do you think Evergreen Review is? We're going to be doing a big article on you. and want to put you forth as someone who's broken the chain between dramatic and storytelling and pornography. Yes. Actual showing of the act. I am now into a project with Barbara. I said, Barbara, 50 grand. Yours is 25. She goes, what's up now? I said, we're doing a porno project, but you know who for? Grove Press. So we do, we do a stretch of films, we put them together, we catalog them, and we did the job. But meanwhile, we dig something happens to us. In watching eight to nine hours of pornography a night, you cannot stop fucking after that. We started to fuck our fucking brains out every night. Something we hadn't probably done since we were kids and running around Europe together, first few years of our marriage. Then it got to the, you know, once a week, <laughs> you know, twice a month, you know, whatever, like yeah. everybody else. Baker's greatest brushes with fame and artistry seem to come with his uncredited exec producing. 
including helping David Lynch get his start with 1977's Eraserhead. FBFVCO, Fred Baker Film and Video Company, continued to produce and distribute films such as Lucino Visconti's The Innocent, Marco Ferreri's Tales of Ordinary Madness, and John Charles Tuschella's Cousin Cousine. Baker was absent from cinema for most of the next decade until his cameo as a druggist in noted feminist indie director Lizzie Borden's 1986 feature Working Girls. Yeah. I need three boxes of a dozen Trojans, one regular, one ripped, and one lubricated. Mm -hmm. A sanitary sponge, one KY jelly, one Caramex contraceptive cream, and an herbal douche. Oh, and can you fill this prescription for low overall 21? You don't take any chances, do you? Working girls. A highly acclaimed new feature film by Lizzie Borden from Miramax Films. This revival continued into 1988 with the documentary series Jazz Masters, for which he served as director and producer. It concluded with Baker's own film about prostitution, 1992's White Trash, which was not as well received. Fred Baker kept busy, shifting back to stage acting, including a 1996 stint as Roy Cohn in Tony Kushner's Angels in America during a 10-week road tour of the Southwest. So happy that I devoted my entire life really to really being an actor and uh, still do still dream of the big part and just did one you know Roy Cohn and uh, Angels in America I'd love to get another part like that and do it or do us do something good on it I just am not going up for garbage you know for three liners and four liners or I go up for a broad, good part in a Broadway show I'll get another job a good one I have no dreams about it anymore I mean to me the acting profession is just a basic instrument my instrument and singing and playing is part of it i like to consider myself a filmmaker i don't know that that's what i really am because i have not made my time at it really enough flagship work except for maybe lenny bruce without tears and uh events which i like but is a very i mean i've made things out of their hands i've scratched them out of nothing it's a very 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 uh strange psycho stoppage on how to raise money or how to really run around looking for other people's money. The real problem with that. Mm -hmm. There's too many fucking games I don't know how to play. I just want the money and let me make a movie. It's not the way it happens. <laughs> no. As I'm sure all the guys who do get the money yeah. can attest to. Dal Babu Baker interviewed the filmmaker as part of a thesis project titled Finding Fred Baker. I lived with his children, Garen and his twin daughters, Madeline and Susan, in the summer times many years ago up in Vermont. One thing led to another, I found I got a hold of his son, Garen. Garen said, hey, call my father. So I called him. And I said, hey, you know, the, the thought of you just popped into my head. You know, you know, you did this film, Lenny Bruce Without Tears, events, jazz masters, and so many other things, uh, distributing films like Battle of Algiers, Eraserhead, Cousin Cuisine. You know, could you share some of your 
infinite wisdom with me? And he said, sure, come on over. If you don't know anything about this and want to be a filmmaker, you better learn. Because here I am, you know, okay, I've had a lot of problems in the last 10, 15 years of my career, basically health problems and other things, and have had to take myself out of what I consider the asshole part of the business, uh, the ass end of the business, which is the part of the business you have to learn, and that is the marketing, where you're going to fit, what niche you're going to fit into, so that when you go to get your money, to make your movie, you can't just depend on Uncle Al and and you know and your father and his uh, his boss to give you the proverbial uh, twenty dollars to make your movie. It just don't work that way because there's a lot more thought has to go into the marketing structure. I've done most of my work very underground, very handheld, very whatever I could find. You know, this mic. If I were ready to shoot tomorrow, I'd have that mic offer you right now, you know what I mean? Or that camera. So it was always catch a catch can in terms of being able to make movies because whoever had the money. Baker's final film was the 2008 ultra-low budget docudrama Asata, a.k.a. Joanna Chismart. First, let me run the actual FBI Most Wanted video for Asata Shakur. The FBI is offering a reward of up to $1 million for information directly leading to the arrest of a most wanted terrorist. I'm Molly Halpern, and this is Wanted by the FBI. Joanne Deborah Chesimard, also known as Asada Shakur, is the latest addition to the FBI's most wanted terrorist list. This comes on the 40th anniversary of the murder of one of Chesimard's victims, a New Jersey State Police Trooper. Werner Forrester and his partner pulled over Chesimard and her two accomplices for a motor vehicle violation. Lieutenant Michael Rinaldi of the FBI Newark Joint Terrorism Task Force. He was executed after being shot with two bullets from his duty weapon, which was ripped from his holster. Chesimard was a prominent member of the Black Liberation Army. BLA was responsible for the killing and wounding of more than a dozen law enforcement officers. Chesimard continues to profess her radical anti-U.S. government ideology. Chesimard was convicted of murder but escaped from prison in 1979. Her escape only increased our resolve to bring her back to finish her prison term. Report tips at 1-800-CALL-F. And you thought my editing was unnaturally breathless. As you might imagine, Baker had a much different interpretation of the fatal events ascribed to Mrs. Chesimard. She was hit three times in her shoulder, side, and back. She sat there bleeding. And then, they lied about her. They would have you believe that as she lay there, slowly bleeding to death, she miraculously got out of the car, walked over to the fallen trooper, picked up his gun, and shot him twice in the head. They know she never got out of that car. But why was the trooper on the ground in the first place? They had no lie for that one. That's it. Marshals, remove Mr. Kunstler. Weren't you thinking it was possible that you might have killed the trooper yourself, wildly firing in all directions, madly firing your gun? Chesimard was convicted in the killing of Trooper Werner Foster and the wounding of another trooper in a furious shootout on the New Jersey Turnpike. And she was convicted in a trial that was biased, bogus, constructed, and set up. You can jail a revolutionary, but you can't jail a revolution. They want her dead, Asha. 
Christine Todd Whitman, when she was the governor, created a $50,000 bounty. Governor Whitman herself went on TV and put a bounty on her head for a million dollars. million-dollar bounty out for Asada, what that it does is say, we're willing to pay for kidnapping. Open the doors. It just, just decided to kill everybody. See, they started shooting again. See, said, he's good and dead now. Edgar Hoover had already said that Black Panther Party and the likes, they had to be neutralized. There's danger in the true telling of this story. I need to know what's going on. Don't you realize we're living in a police state? I have to go to Cuba and meet her face to face. Well, I'm not going with you, Asha. You have to. It's Cuba. My people. It's the rhythm. It's music. If we do nothing else in this generation, if we can pull this off, we will rock this world. We have to make A state trooper was murdered, but Asada Shakur did not commit that murder. If you think you know this story, you should see this film. If you believe the lies about her, then you must see this film. Fred became devoted to her cause after finding himself in the same New York City jail as her for a minor drug offense in the 1970s. Made on half a shoestring, Asada has a lot more power than 90% of what comes out of Hollywood today. My trip to Cuba, wow, was just great. And we're in the late developments of our research on the story of Asada Shakur also known as Joanne Chesimar. She is now under protective exile in Cuba. Uh, finally, I got a call directly from Asada. We spoke for a couple of hours, and it, it was very productive. It was such an unfair trial by an all-white jury. Harper, who was the other police, started to shoot. It was horrible. It was like a prolonged version of hell. What do you do when the government becomes the terrorist? I hope you defend yourself. So essentially those years were a, were a prototype or a, an example for what we then schooled all of the oligarchical dictatorships in Central America to do to their people who spoke up for their rights. Well, you get a death squad or you get some ex-cops or ex-national guards. You, you train them in torture and in murder and send them out to murder people. And that's what happened with Sada Shakur. What I'm doing right now is saying, hey, wait a minute, like, you know, I'm supposed to be dying of AIDS, right? I mean, here I am, keep surviving, which is not good, thank God, you know, that I'm strong enough to do that. Yes, we're, we're you know, we're all inflicted with our Jewish kite, yeah. which we'll never give up. You know, our locks uh -huh. and our bagels and our cream cheese and our, and our music and our dancing and our, right. you know, and our fun and our sarcasm. Right. But all the other accoutrements that make us too tribal, that make us too potentially right. different from other people, right. fuck that shit. That's, that's getting, gotten too many people killed. The last time I saw Fred was at this art show, uh, August 2010. And wait, wait, wait. his son, uh, Garen Baker, Hi. who is one of the featured artists in the show, on hard times at Salmagundi. 
June 2011, he died. Ironically, despite battling uh, HIV for 20 years, it was emphysema brought on by a lifetime of smoking that did him in. in. His last year on Earth, he used to go everywhere with a portable oxygen tank, including to this art show. But that didn't get in his way, neither did the HIV, in fact. Uh, Fred had such a tremendous uh, lust for life that nothing would stop him. He was um, had so much energy that his, his younger friends and relatives had trouble keeping up with him at, at his wonderful memorial service for Fred. A son-in-law said that when they were off to go see some, go uh, take part in some jam session on a uh, Saturday afternoon, he practically had a run to keep up with Fred, who was uh, wheeling the oxygen tank behind him. I guess doing this uh, movie is my way of paying tribute to a great friend and uh, human being. Moving on, for all I know, the actor playing the rookie, Rod Tucker, may have actually gotten shot in the head on that rooftop. Rod Stouffer has no other credits besides Dawn of the Dead and little to no online tracing. I did find an obituary for Rodney Darl Stouffer, who is born in Lewistown, Pennsylvania, and would have been about 32 at the time of filming. This fellow was a Vietnam vet and retired machinist who passed away in 2012, but again, I don't know if this is the same guy. The Living Dead wiki points out that Rod was the first on-screen death of many, and that it may have contributed to the mental breakdown of both Wooly and Roger. They also state that this is in the third week of the Undead Rising. I haven't vetted that myself, but I'll take the word on it. I was dead long before any of this happened. <laughs> the dead comedy writer, that's me. I just left Gus. Can't say I'm surprised. You cheated on me today. Deborah, Deborah, you have no idea what it's like to be olfactory. I'm constantly barraged by the smells of temptation. I always thought I'd come back here, live in the country. <laughs> I will do anything. I'll paint. I'll, I'll fix stuff. This is how it's going to be. You're going to fix this place up. And you're going to be here for the kids. I, I was here. I was digging. I, I was upset. And I needed some help. So you wished on a dead man? Oh my God, Gus, you don't do that. here Gus what's Quinto doing here he's working he's working very hard Deborah So the Fred Baker section really got away from me, obviously. This will probably be the longest episode of the show we've done so far. And I just have to point out the irony of us doing a minute of screen time and devoting probably closer to 90 minutes to covering elements of that minute. Uh, we're just going to do a token movie review you know, just because it's part of our pattern, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it because this episode's already too long. Zombie Dearest from 2009. In this movie, a zombie day laborer endures routine. It's sort of a drama zombie. Actors in this movie, you probably won't ever recognize. The main screen credits are things like additional voice talent on Saw 3 and 4. The basics are a fellow named Gus Lawton, played by David Kimker, is a failed comic supported the past half dozen years by his wife, Deborah, played by Shauna Black who is a better actress than this material. Gus proves as unsuccessful at adultery as everything else in his life and winds up forced into servitude at Deborah's rural childhood home in hopes of making amends. Gus inadvertently awakens a buried zombie dubbed Quinto 
played by David Sparrow, who he uses to do his many chores while he works on a terrible caveman-themed stand-up act that Gus intends to try out in a barn on the local yokels. Quinto, unsurprisingly, gets up to flesh-hating shenanigans while unsupervised, which complicates the Lawton's plans. Zombie Dearest is clearly a vanity project for writer-director star David Kempker, who apparently had enough industry ties to call in favors to match 80s Canadian television production values, pull a strong bluegrass cut for the trailer, A No Grave by Crooked Still, and cast a credible co-star. Due to the minimal competence on display, it's difficult to tell whether Kimker intended for his characters to be unlikable, arrogant left coasters, or if Gus's act is so wretched because Kimker was afraid rednecks might actually laugh at it if he put even an ounce of effort into the writing. It's probably not a good idea to do bad work on purpose when you're an unknown quantity, since it's so easily mistaken for being of poor quality in itself. It doesn't help that a pseudo-love triangle is resolved off-screen, a major plot about the town's history with the supernatural is never addressed, and the picture as a whole is tone-deaf. At its core, this is an indie flick about displaced liberals and the sticks and their hubris, but it's played too broadly to offer insight. There appears to be overtures toward this being a comedy, but the film doesn't come within spitting distance of funny at any point. Then there's the zombie element, which is so tacked on that it's safe to assume its involvement was motivated by mercenary inclinations. The film owes more to W.W. Jacobs' The Monkey's Paw than George Romero, so when the shit hits the fan in the final minutes of the last act, it flies briefly and with a remarkable lack of feces. Just rub it in, there's a twist ending that's more depressing than most zombie flicks for the exact wrong reason. This could have been a decent enough half-hour entry in an anthology, but as a full-length feature, it is completely charmless. Freddy, get the new list of rescue stations. Charlie's receiving on the emergency. Rescue stations. The 20th Century Geek Podcast, Ann Labs, Baby Skeletor, Chris Dunford, Chris Lydon, Chris Thompson, CJ, Dirk Ashton, who added Thank You RSP, and Smiley Face with Smiley Eyes Emoji, El Romero Romero, Justice League HG, I Was Joe Crawford, Just in Time of the JT Baggers, Keith G. Baker, King Dinosaur, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun Podcast, Mike at Send Aliens to Me, Mix Jeffrey Brown, Randy Caldwell, Ranger Gord, Reverend Odell Abner Dracula, Richard G., Richard Van Ingram, Ryan Daly, Shanna Banana, who added some black hearts and a zombie emoji, Sean McLaughlin, Talk Nerdy to Me, Tim Mason, Ufta, and Zunizoic Xenophiles. Richard G. added, Awesome, love being included here, Zombie It Up, then Hero On. A legal machine noted, listening to Zombie Cast, casually, and Diablo Frank goes in on mainstream media, OAN, Newsmax, and Fox News. Guess I'm hitting pause and will listen when I've got more time to understand how we got here. Keith concurred on that. The truth is, it never occurred to me that ZombieCast wouldn't be political. All of George Romero's movies, for the most part, especially the zombie ones, are political. Night of the Living Dead features a black man manhandling a blonde woman and killing both living and undead white people within a short amount of time after the Martin Luther King Jr. assassination. Day of the Dead is about the military-industrial complex, especially as related to the Reagan administration and the Cold War era. Land of the Dead is similar. It's an allegory for the Iraq War. All the movies are about racism. So at the level of drilling down we're going to do, uh, you can expect a lot of talk about particularly lefty politics, although I think that there'll be some interesting takes going forward because whether or not they were intentional or not, I think Romero sometimes communicated things that don't fall neatly on the left-right spectrum. We'll get to that when we get to that. Finally, Kyle Benning noted that that rant was glorious and poetic. I do what I can. I I don't think there's anything political about wearing a mask and not infecting your fellow man with disease. This is especially true when you're talking in the context of zombies. You get bit, you get scratched, you're out of the fucking club, buddy. I don't think that we can be ambiguous about that. If you're not doing what you need to do to take care of your fellow man, you're part of the fucking problem. (laughs) 